Good. Good evening. Good evening. Everyone's everyone's kind of towards the back. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe that's maybe that's normal. There's two empty rows at the front, but that's that's fine. I'm sure you can all I'm sure you can all hear me from there. So, thank you, Ruth. Uh, as as Ruth said, uh, I'm Ben, one of the elders here at, at Rehope. Um, I've been here now for about six years. Uh, don't let the accent fool you. I'm not from Glasgow originally. Um, we did we did move here about six years ago, and have been been coming to Rehope ever since. And I've been one of the elders for. Uh, for the last four, but it's the first time most of you will have heard me speak, unless you were here this morning, um, so it should be good fun, less pressure now, I've done it once, so how hard can it be second time round? Uh, the, the brief for today was, was pretty broad, uh, those of you that have been here the last few weeks will know we're, we're sort of in between uh, different, different sermon series, so speak about something close to your heart was, was Brian's suggestion. Uh, so I want to spend the next 20 minutes-ish, plus or minus, uh, talking about something of, of real importance, something that, that God's been speaking to me about, something that I care passionately about, and that's food. <laughs> so, so when my wife and I moved to Glasgow back in 2012, I remember wondering what, what Glasgow would be like, the weather, the people, the places, the cuisine. We'd lived all over the country, we'd spent a bit of time living in in Germany, we'd experience all sorts of different things, people, places, a real mix. Um, and we really weren't sure what to expect in Glasgow. I still remember one of my early experiences and, and it stuck with me and the surprise I felt when I went to the works canteen pretty soon after arriving. It's, it's a mistake I haven't repeated since. Um, and that, I was struck by the food choices for that day, hot meals for that day, two choices. The first was fish and chips, yeah, pretty, pretty staple. Um, and the second, because of the, the, the sort of health drive in the business, was labelled healthy option. And the healthy option for that day was macaroni cheese with a wee slice of pizza. I thought, wow, this is, um, wow, yeah, that's, that's different. They don't, um, they don't label it a healthy option anymore. <laughs> They've given up, it's just two now. Um, and I, I find, just like that, food has a, a funny way of sticking in the memory. Uh, whilst I was preparing this talk, I was reminded of the best meal that I've ever eaten. It was on my wedding anniversary, uh, celebrating three years of, of being married to my wife, Sarah. And I thought, I'll treat her to a, a meal at a, a fab restaurant down in Surrey, where we were living uh, at the moment. It was a lovely old manor house, wonderful ambience, welcoming staff, quaint English charm that just oozed out of the place. And I, I remember we sat down at the table in the corner, lovely, lovely room, oak beams. Oh, it was tremendous. And, um, and then the arrival of Stephen, bearing quite simply the largest, bushiest mutton chops I'd ever seen. I don't mean the food, the, the whiskers coming out of the side of his face like some 19th century industrialist. Absolutely magnificent. And, and he turned up and introduced himself as our sommelier for the evening and proceeded to drop onto the table what he described quite rightly as a weighty tome. It was a hardback book with the wine list in, and it must have been 80 pages or so. It would have taken the duration of the meal to have gone through all the options, I think. Um, and it's, it's stuck with me since. And, and the food, goodness, the food was exquisite. At least I think it was exquisite. Because, do you know, I, I really don't remember what I ate. I don't remember the food very well. I just have an overriding memory of it being wonderful. So you might be asking, why, why is this your, your best ever meal? You don't even remember the food. And I, I think if you put to one side Stephen and his facial hair and the, the fun of reading the novel that was The Wine List, it was the time that I spent with, with Sarah. It was the time we spent talking and dreaming about our future, about where we would go, the things that we wanted to accomplish together, the calling that we felt God had placed upon us as a couple. It was the togetherness, the unity, 
that marks it out as a highlight. The memory is so powerful, not because of the food, but because of the role that the food that we shared played as a vehicle to allowing genuine openness, unity, and togetherness. And that's what brings people together for meals and celebrations. I'm sure you've all partaken of parties and dinners with, with friends and family for big, important occasions. And that's really what I want to talk about this evening. It's about that, that act of sharing food, of, of sharing life, of the fellowship that comes from, from those occasions. Because food is ultimately a way to bring people together, to build relationships and friendships, and to create the opportunity to build community by means of hospitality, to show God's love to those around us. And as we look at the examples set for us in the Bible, we'll see that food, fellowship, hospitality, and community are all, all intrinsically linked and central to God's plan for us. And this evening we're going to focus on, on hospitality in particular. There's, there's probably a whole series there if we wanted to, but this is just a one-off at the moment. And I'm going to focus on hospitality because I, I feel of all those topics, it's the one that, that I've been learning the most about over the last, the last month, so I really want to share with you. So to start with, I'd just like you to think about your, your close friends, the, the last group of people that you maybe shared a, a meal or a, a cup of tea or coffee with. Just think about what are they like, how old are they, what do they do for a living? I found myself pondering these questions over recent months, and I've been challenged by some of the answers that I've arrived at. And I think for me, like, like for most of us, the answer is that the people we're closest to, the people we choose to spend the most time with, are pretty similar to us. Similar in age, in social group, in upbringing, we're most often attracted to people with whom we're the most similar and we share lots of characteristics. Not as a conscious choice, but as something subconscious, something that just happens. But if we spend most of our time and focus most of our friendships on people with whom we, we naturally click, people similar to us, then are we really fulfilling our, our Matthew 28 Great Commission calling to go and make disciples of all nations? How the people who aren't like us be reached and hear the gospel? And be discipled and that's the point that I've been thinking over that's the thing I've been challenged on is is how do I reach out and connect with people who aren't like me people I don't naturally click with people I don't share a love of cricket with I, I don't see why people wouldn't love cricket but some some don't so how do I connect with with people in that category and we'll talk about it more over the course of this evening and, and look at the example set for us by Jesus and and by some of his Old Testament forebears and I hope through this to show that we are called to show hospitality and build community with all of those around us. Not solely those who like us and not only those whom we like. And it's, it's not something that's easy. It doesn't come naturally to most of us. There are those exceptional few who just seem to have a, a real gift for it. And, and there's an example there we can follow. But for most of us, it's not natural or easy most of the time. And it's definitely not something that I'm particularly good at. I'm not speaking from a position of, of having this sorted but it is something I'm working on and that I believe we must all work on if we're to build a genuine, open, and hospitable church. Now, those who were here last week, just as an aside, we'll have heard Brian talking about uh, the, the steps we're making in, in getting a building in the South Side and opening a South Side campus. Those that weren't here last week, surprise. Um, if you weren't going to listen to the, the message, you'll hear more about that. And, and I think this is really timely. God's put this on my heart to share at a time when we're thinking about how we'd prepare for that, that new opportunity, that, that new community and group of people to build and to reach down in the south side. And I hope there's some good stuff in here uh, that will, will set us in good stead for when, uh, when that comes to pass. So we're going to dig into the Bible now. If you have yours, yours with you, then please turn to uh, Ruth chapter 2. And don't worry if you don't, the words will be on the screen. There's, uh, there's quite a few of them. I realized when I looked at the slides earlier, there's, uh, it, it's, quite a, it's quite a chunk of scripture, but it's it's good stuff. 
So I'll read it out. So Ruth chapter 2, 1 to 16. Ruth meets Boaz in the grain field. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I such, found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. Uh, and that, was a, that was a good thing. Uh, it sounds awful, but uh, bread dipped in wine vinegar was, um, was top cuisine at the time. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So hopefully most of you are familiar in, in some way with the story of Ruth and with, with the book. If not, then, then go and read it. It's, it's tremendous. Maybe don't go and read it right now. Wait till we've finished. Um, but to go and read it, I'd encourage you to. It's an incredible story of love, commitment, honor, family, hospitality, and above all, community. It's a testament to God's love for all people, whether Jew or Gentile. And I also discovered, which, which really interested me uh, while I was preparing for this evening, that traditionally it's read in synagogues uh, at the Feast of Weeks, which celebrated harvest and God's provision of food. So, so also in the, in the Jewish tradition, it's recognized as a, a real story and a, a book that talks about that provision and God's provision. So here we have Ruth. I'll do a little recap for you of, of some of the background. Here we have Ruth, um, recently moved from, from her native Moab. So she's, she was born in Moab. She's only ever lived in Moab. And she's moved to Bethlehem in order to support her mother-in-law, Naomi, who was Jewish and was from that area, had moved to Moab um, Ruth had married Naomi's son. Naomi's son had died. And then uh, Ruth had moved with Naomi back to Bethlehem so that she could support her in an act of, of sacrificial love. So they get to, to Bethlehem. They don't have anyone there. There's no one they, they seem to know. They've got no community, no support. And clearly Ruth's first thoughts are on, on how she'll sustain herself and Naomi. 
And having arrived at the time of the barley harvest, she decides to find a field and collect the leftover grain from the areas of the field that the harvesters have passed over. So you want to think back, this is, this is clearly pre-tractors and combine harvesters, pre-mechanization of farming, all that sort of stuff. There'd be teams of men toiling all day, going through collecting the barley harvest in that short window of time when it's ripe and before it spoils. So it, it wouldn't be uncommon for there to be bits left behind, maybe some of the less attractive grain, maybe bits that the harvesters have dropped. There'd be bits left behind in the field. So what Ruth was doing was, was not uncommon for someone in, uh, in a position of need was to go behind and to pick up the leavings that were found on the floor, to go and pick up the bits of grain, the bits of barley that, that had been missed by the harvesters. So she's there in the field, toiling away, clearly a foreigner and clearly fallen on, on hard times. And it's worth mentioning at this point the relationship between Moab and, and Israel was, was maybe a frosty one, to say, to say the least. They bordered one another, and, and throughout the history of Israel, there'd been plenty of conflict and, and, and discord between both of the countries. So not only is she foreign, not only has she come into Israel, but there were, there were, there were differing thoughts on um, Moabites and their, their presence there uh, in Israel. So then Boaz, he owns the field, and he arrives and he sees Ruth. He asks his foreman who she is and what she's doing, and rather than going up and throwing her out for effectively stealing his grain, which, which uh, effectively she was doing, she hadn't asked his permission and he owned the field. But instead of, of throwing her out or insisting that she stops, he instead does the, the polar opposite. He invites her to continue. He invites her in to keep gleaning in his fields, to stay with the women who work for him, to drink from his water jars. He even then invites her to eat with him and with the harvesters and, and makes sure she has enough for her and Naomi to eat. So not only does he not take what might have been the natural response and, and kick her out of his field, he goes, he goes 10 steps the other way. He invites her in. He gets the harvesters to pull out some extra grain for her. He feeds her. He gives her shelter and protection. He gives her food and water and enough for Naomi as well. Boaz shares food and water with Ruth, the two most basic of gifts, but those essential to life. He has no obligation to. There's no incentive for him to do so. And he does it anyway. It's only much later that they realize there's a, a link there, a family link, and, and the two of them get married. This is well before that time, and, and before that's, that's even thought of. There's absolutely no obligation. It's Boaz's generosity, his hospitality, that invites her in, invites her to stay, and sees her needs taken care of. And that's just one example. There's so much more we could, we could draw from that. There's so, much, so many more examples in the Old Testament. This is just one. If we go backwards, we see uh, the example of Abraham and Sarah who offer food and water to visiting angels. And it's, it's when hosting those angels that the Lord promises they'll have a son. And the same angels then journey to Sodom and Gomorrah uh, and only Lot is spared the resulting destruction that the, the angels inflict on those towns. And he's spared entirely as, as a result of him following Abraham's example and offering shelter and hospitality to those angels and being the only person to do so. There's something so basic, so simple and so primal about sharing food and water with people, even today. It's sharing the basic essentials of life and represents the desire to support and to care for someone. And that's why there's such a strong value placed upon hospitality in the Old Testament, because of what it meant and because of the general unavailability of food and water. It wasn't like today where most of us for, for most of our lives, hopefully, haven't really had to worry too much about where food and water would, would come from. Uh, I know people fall on hard times, and, but there's, there's a support network there. There's, there's support today that, that simply wasn't in place this many years ago, thousands of years ago. It just, it just didn't exist. If people had no livelihood and no family to fall back on, 
then the, the likely reality was that they would starve. And, and that really was the fate that Ruth and Naomi uh, would have faced if Boaz hadn't intervened. So there was a, a real cultural expectation at the time of offering food, offering shelter, offering hospitality, because people would be journeying across inhospitable lands without easy access to a, a Waitrose or a, a Starbucks or something else that we might get used to now. And that sort of generous hospitality we see was also a calling on the nation of Israel in particular, just as they were supported by God. So they were called on to support those in need. God provided for his people. Think, think manna from heaven during the 40 years of exile since leaving Egypt and before they arrived at the promised land. 40 years the Israelites spent journeying around the wilderness. And for six days out of every seven over that 40-year period, God provided them with manna. He provided them with food. He made sure that their basic needs were taken care of. And his people were expected to provide for those in need around them following God's example of caring. And that's another link into where we as a church are now. We're in a season of caring. We've talked about the need for us to be caring for one another, building a, a caring community, a more caring community here. And I think this, this, this theme of hospitality just really strikes a chord with, with how we care for one another. And this example is followed through. If we, if we look at, at Jesus and, and some of the examples, just some of the examples, again, there's, there's so many to choose from. But think of uh, the feeding of the 5,000, probably more than 5,000. Um, it, it was 5,000 men, so there'd have been women, children, all sorts of other people there. So 5,000 plus. Um, and, and you look at the context of where this took place. Jesus has just heard of the death of John the Baptist. He's, he's reacting to that. He's probably um, traumatized from hearing that, that John's died. He's upset. He wants to go and spend some time in peace and quiet, find somewhere to retreat to. And what does he find but 5,000 plus people following him He's trying to get away from that, get away from the people that follow him around during his ministry. And instead he finds a, a, a veritable army of people coming with him. Now, I, I, like most of you, like to get some time away from, from time to time. Go and find a solitary spot to sit, to reflect, to, to seek God, to pray, to do, do whatever it is you need to do just with a, peace, a bit of peace and quiet. And I know how I would feel if 5,000 people followed me and spoiled my, my nice, quiet time away from it all. I, I don't think I'd be best pleased. But look at, at Jesus' response. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't send them away. He doesn't continue to walk until they get left behind. He doesn't even rail against them for their lack of planning. They've turned up in the middle of nowhere. They didn't bring any food. They didn't bring any drink. They were so desperate to follow Jesus and, and hear more of his teaching. And instead of, of doing what might have seemed obvious, he turns around and he provides food for them, miraculously provides food for everyone there. Because that's what mattered in that moment. What mattered was showing that hospitality, that care, that love for the people that had followed him. And consider also Jesus' first miracle, turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. Even then, Jesus was stirred to miraculous provision. Wine in this instance, um, not to save life, not because people would die of thirst without that extra glass of wine, but to help ensure the wedding didn't end on a sour note. He's there at a party and they've run out of wine and that would have been culturally a, a huge slur on the, the hospitality of the, the host there to, to realize they've run out of wine and, and the wedding had run dry at the time when, when people were expecting to be taken care of. It would have been a knock to the host's hospitality. So Jesus steps in. It wasn't life or death, but it was provision of, of what was needed at the time to help for that, that hospitality and then the, the community, the, the fellowship, everything that built from celebrating that wedding together. He steps in and makes sure that that can continue. Community can continue to be built. So what are we called to? How do we follow Jesus' example when it comes to living with that kind of generous hospitality? 
there's, there's four key points that stuck out with me, and I'll, I'll share each one of these with you now. So the first one is to seek to show hospitality to all those around you at all times. So think about that calling that was placed upon the Israelites, and, and that remains just as current to us here and now. When we see someone in need, we're called to help, to offer them whatever they might need. Jesus goes even further than just food and shelter and encourages us even to give the clothes off our own backs if we see brothers or sisters in need. Luke 6, 30, give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. It's a radical calling to help those in need. And the calling to help fellow believers is especially strong. In John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so also you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So how are we, how are we doing with that? We're called to pay special attention to the body of believers, but to show that love to all those around us. What more do we need to do? What steps do we need to take to help us become more caring, to show that love more readily to those around us, to live with that view of people that Jesus had? whether we're introverts or extroverts, whether it comes naturally or it's the most challenging thing that you can think of doing. How do we, how do we start to do that more? Because it's, it's important that we think about that because it's in offering hospitality that we build a genuine community. For what's community at its heart if not a group of people who care for and support one another? And we don't have to wait for people to be at rock bottom or in serious need. We don't have to wait for them to be on the point of, of starvation before we step in and show hospitality. It's something we should be seeking to do often in order to build our community, to create and deepen friendships as a means of loving one another well. I still remember the way that it felt after each of my daughters was born. I've got two. One's four, one's one and a half. And, and I remember the first two or three weeks after each of them were born, every night different people from the church would, would turn up at our doorstep, bringing us food, bringing us a meal, something to drink, coming to, to see the new, the new baby and to come and, and share that joy and excitement with us. And I can tell you, as, as someone that's been through it twice, there's, there's nothing better when you're in the first couple of weeks in particular of parenthood than having someone turn up with a wonderful dinner that they've cooked. There is, there is nothing that beats that, apart from maybe a good night's sleep, but no one can help with that. So <laughs> there's, something, there's something just so humbling and, and so edifying to be on the receiving end, that other people would be willing to take time out, to cook, to prepare something, to drive out to where we live, to bring food, to support us, to, to bring the most basic but most essential things that we need just to help us. And a huge range of people signed up both times, people we knew well, people we didn't know at all, parents, non-parents, uh, just a, a huge number of people, a, a really wide range. And I think it's, it just jumps out at me, it's such a good practical example of the kind of selfless hospitality that should mark us apart from the secular world. This is one of those hallmarks that by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. How better to show love to one another than to go and support people when they're in need. There's a, there's a couple of these running at the moment. Um, take them a meal, we call it. And there's a couple running, there's a couple of people that have, have been blessed with, with children in the last few weeks. Uh, and I'm sure there's, there's still slots there. If people feel encouraged to after this evening, then why not go and look and sign up and, and go and bless someone else in the church? That's not one of the challenges we'll come into. That's, that's for free. Um, I strongly encourage you to take, take those opportunities to bless part of our community. It's this sort of act of hospitality and generosity that will draw us closer together and bring us closer to the biblical model of community that we see repeatedly in the Old and New Testaments. 
And the second part of this first point, at all times. And I, I know what life's like. I know what it feels like. As I said, I've got two children. Time is, is a rare commodity. Life's busy, work's busy, studying, whatever it is you're doing, life is just busy. There's a lot else to think about. But the reality is that this doesn't have to be something time-consuming. Just taking the time to bless someone else with food, with a drink, with a cup of tea, it's the act. It's that, it's that going forward and, and doing it that makes the difference. Because every time we do it, we just help to inch one step closer to that sort of radical, generous community that we should be working for. So it doesn't have to be a dinner party. You don't have to send out embossed invitations to 20 people around the church to come and join you for a four-course dinner in your home. Although if you want to, please feel free. Um, happy to give you my details later. Um, it could be as simple as inviting someone over just for a cup of tea. I'm sure you've all had invitations like that in the past, out of the blue. Someone invites you over just to come and, and, and share a drink with them. And, and just think about how that makes you feel. Every time you get one of those out of the blue, someone you don't know very well invites you over, how does that make you feel? Loved, valued, included, part of the community here. Every single one of those events builds us together just a little bit more. And then point number two, don't worry about background or how similar you are. We're called to be hospitable to everyone we meet who has need. So, so much of the biblical hospitality model that we see and, and so much of the example, think of, think of Ruth, it's to, to foreigners or to strangers, people out of place in the land that they're in, people that maybe don't have that, that connection, that network, uh, the family that will support them. Despite the relationship between Israel and Moab being complex, Boaz still steps forward to help Ruth because he sees that genuine need. We should try to see the opportunities that arise to show hospitality as chances to demonstrate God's love to a range of different people far beyond the usual group of friends that we talked about earlier. Even simple things like welcoming new people to church here. Uh, you, you'll all know what it's like to walk into a church for the first time, maybe where you don't know anyone. And, and just how comforting it is to have someone come up and, and welcome you and offer you a cup of tea or coffee, a croissant, or a cookie, whatever else it might be. Um, it, it just makes you feel immediately more included than you would otherwise. So at this point, I, I just want to consider that word, hospitality. I've, I've repeated it more times than I've counted. And I was struck by, by what it really means um, so I, I looked at the Greek for the word hospitality. It appears a couple of times in the New Testament in the Greek. And the word there, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to follow this. If you are, uh, come and correct me later <laughs> if I've got anything wrong. Um, it comes from the Greek word uh, philozenia, which comes from two different root words. The first of those is philos, uh, which translated best as, as a friend, someone dearly loved or prized in a personal, intimate way, a trusted confidant held dear in a close, personal bond of affection it conveys an experiential love coming from a time spent with someone so this isn't just uh, a normal friend someone that you maybe speak to once every couple of months this is something deeper something closer something built around that experiential love that time spent uh, together actively loving the person and the second part there xenos uh, strangers or, or foreigners think of the word xenophobia that's that's probably the one that, that shares a similar root that's most used today. Um, so xenos, strangers, foreigners. So if we look at it literally, you put those two together, hospitality as a word means to show experiential love, to be out there loving people who are strangers or foreigners in particular. Not just thinking about it, taking action. But it's heart, it's, it's not just an act. 
It's more than that. It's a posture. It's a way of being and thinking about people that happens to, to come out to overflow through how we act. If we strive to see people as God sees them, with his heart and with his love, we take his view and his approach, then the overflow from that love that we see and we feel for people is wanting to act in a hospitable way, is wanting to spend time with people, is wanting to get to know people, to build community and to be, be in, in fellowship with them. The act is important because that's the overflow, but it's, it's having our hearts in the right place, seeing people in the right way, seeing people as God sees them, that, that fundamentally underlines uh, the whole, the whole uh, concept. It's also worth noting that hospitality is not the same as entertaining. The former is, as I've said, a way of thinking and feeling. The latter is a way of acting, of arranging things just so. The, the drape of the fairy lights over the dinner table, the cutlery polished and aligned, the mood lighting set to create just the ambiance, the right playlist on, on the radio from Spotify, whatever it might be, however you set the mood, that's, that's entertaining and that has real value. Creating that right ambiance is great and it can help the conversation flow and, and create the mood, but that's not hospitality. So, so don't, don't think it's not important but it's, it's secondary to treating anyone that might walk through your door with genuine love and affection. You can have all the ambience set, you can have the best playlist going on in the background, but if you don't have that genuine love and that overflow of love as you welcome people in, then, then uh, we miss out. I was also interested to find out that the, the concept of hospitality and, and biblically how it was outworked uh, is a big part of the answer to a question that I've pondered for some time. How did the gospel spread so fast? You think it was um, when when Jesus died and was resurrected? It was it was small. Christianity was small. It was it was contained within a uh, a pretty small part of of the Middle East. There weren't yeah, it wasn't as spread as it is today. And within within a few hundred years, um, most of the continent of Europe had been touched in some way by Christianity and by the message of the gospel. The Roman Empire had converted to Christianity. Its spread was was um, like nothing else. And and how did that happen? Well. Obviously, God was behind it, which, which was the most important thing. But also important was the church's knack for showing hospitality to people, for sharing food, for spending time with them, and the opportunity that that affords for effective evangelism. If we love people first, if we show them we care, if we invite them in to share food, then through those acts, they'll see God's love displayed to them. Through those acts, they'll come to know us, and they'll experience God. I firmly believe there's no better way of getting to know people of sharing the gospel and of discipling people than over food, over a meal. It's not chance that, that courses like the Alpha Course take place over a meal because of the atmosphere that creates, because of the opportunity uh, it creates and because of the, the hospitality that it shares. And point number three, good hospitality is about accepting offers as well as making them. So there's, there's more to this than, than solely inviting people to come and share time and, and food with us. If we all invited but never accepted uh, then we really wouldn't get anywhere. There'd just be a lot of disappointed people uh, and a lot of meals and cups of tea going to waste. We see from the examples that Jesus sets throughout his ministry that accepting offers of hospitality and spending time with people, even those that, that we may not agree with, is a vital part of our calling if we're to emulate Jesus' example. Jesus had dinner with Pharisees, a group that, that maybe didn't see eye to eye with, uh, Luke 7:36, And with tax collectors, think of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter nine, uh, 19, he accepted water from a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. As we mentioned, he fed the 5,000. 
And if we look at that example Jesus sets, he doesn't just spend time with people like him, rabbis. He spends time with, with a cross-section of the community. He spends time with, with tax collectors like Zacchaeus and with prostitutes, people at the lowest rung of the moral ladder at the time, the people that were shunned by the rest of the community. These are the people that Jesus chose to spend time with, chose to extend hospitality to, and chose to accept hospitality from. So this kind of hospitality, eating, drinking, was central to Jesus' Jesus' ministry and how he outworked it. Indeed, there are over 50 references to Jesus at dinner or telling parables that involve meals in the Gospel of Luke alone, and nearly double that in Matthew. There was a, a commentator I was reading said, if you look at the, uh, the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is always on his way to, at, or going from a meal through the whole book. He's in one of those three states. And, and you know, I think that's, that's quite true. Luke 7.34 says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, which was a, a signpost to the major tool of, of Jesus' ministry, sharing food, sharing water with people. Throughout his ministry, he accepted and extended hospitality as a major tool to allow him to further his ministry. And I believe this is an example we're all called to emulate. So just think, how, how good are you at accepting unexpected offers of hospitality? And then point number four, good hospitality comes from a genuine heart. So as a final point, I just wanted to touch on, on how we are when we're being hospitable, when we invite people around for that meal or cup of tea. 1 Peter 4.9 says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Proverbs 23.6-7 has similar instruction. Do not eat the food of a begrudging host. Do not crave his delicacies, for he is the kind of person who is always thinking about the cost. The point here is not that we should spend extravagantly, but rather if we're going to discharge our calling to hospitality, we must do so in a genuine way with a happy heart, much like our calling to give in a joyful way, not grumbling about the cost. When we're hosting people, we shouldn't be concerned about their table manners, about how many bottles of elderflower presse they might have consumed over the course of the evening. Maybe that's just me. We should be focused on how we love them well, building community. Our calling is to make disciples of all nations, showing God's love and spreading his gospel. Creating a welcoming, hospitable environment in our church is a key component of outworking this calling. We must seek to build a community with fellow believers that reflects the love and unity that Jesus built with his disciples. There are some things we do here at this church that you'll know if you've been here for, uh, for a little while. You'll have experienced the emphasis we place on, on feasting together here, following some of the, uh, the, the Jewish and the, uh, the Old Testament um, feasts that were celebrated and that Jesus celebrated. Because of the chance it gives us to come together to eat, to share food, to share time together and to build our community. If you've not been to one, then when the next opportunity comes on, come, uh, come along. It's a cracking chance to meet people, to mix with people, to get to know them to share food in the same way that we see modeled in the Bible, and by so doing to foster and to grow a culture of hospitality and a community of people who love and care for one another, as Jesus taught us. So I've got some challenges that I want to, want to share today. There's three challenges which will be up on the screen. The first, and this hits into that, that heart of, of what hospitality is, is, is to pray that you would see people as God sees them, love people as God loves them, and that through this we might build a deeper, stronger, more open and supportive community. That's, that's quite a mouthful, actually, of a challenge. But there we go. Just don't miss that, that key bit. Be praying that we would see people as God sees them and love them as he does. Because if things don't come from that basis, that, that, fun, that fundamental foundation of the love that we have for people, then, then it all comes to nothing. 
for this, I'd suggest why not try praying each morning or, or each evening or, or sometime that works for you during the day. Be praying that God would give you his eyes and his heart for people. And I think if you do that for a number of days in a row, you'll be surprised perhaps by how you start seeing people in a different way. Number two is to think about whom you could take the next step in hospitality with. So think about maybe colleagues or, or friends or, or course mates or um, family members even. I, I don't know who it might be, but, but think of someone, think of some people that, that you could go further with, that you could deepen your, your relationship with, that you could, you could be a better witness to. And then I encourage you to go for it. Think of one, two, three people you want to spend some, some more time with this week, not people you're planning on seeing anyway, but people you aren't, maybe people you don't know so well. And then go for it, invite them around, invite them over for that cup of tea or coffee. Try and take that next step and, and build community with them. And then the third point uh, really feeds on quite naturally from that. Accept any invitations you receive, allow others the opportunity to be hospitable. Now I know this will be a challenge, some of you will be far too popular and just receive too many invitations to accept them all. And if you do, then, then why not accept the ones from the people that you know least well? Take the chance to, to go and, and build a, a friendship, build a relationship, build community with someone that, that you don't know as well. Because it's, it's in doing this, it's in, in us connecting and, and building that, that community, that, that fellowship through the means of hospitality that we really emulate the early church, that we follow Jesus' example, that we follow his method, his approach, and that we'll see the gospel spread. So if you join me now, uh, I just want to pray for us all. Holy Spirit, come. Spirit of God, would you fall now? Fall now in this place and, and come and fill us. Fill us with your love, fill us with your heart, fill us with, with your eyes for, for people. Build us into a hospitable, welcoming people in church. Help us to see people as you see them, Father. To love people regardless of, of how similar they are or how different they are from us. Father, continue to build our fellowship here as a church. Bind us together. Make us an open and welcoming people. Help us to, to show this kind of generous hospitality that we're called to. Help us in this, Father. Fill us with your spirit and guide us in this. In Jesus' name.